If you have your copies of God's Word for the first time in three years, we will not be in the book of Luke, but in the book of Acts. And we're going to begin in verse 1. This is a little bit of a challenge for me this week. I'm a little bit sleep deprived. I got seasick yesterday on Lake Michigan, broke my primary uh, pair of reading glasses, pulled out my old ones that are old prescription, broke those. They're being held together right now by super glue. And then as I got here, uh, for the first time in 20 years, I saw one of my teachers who I knew as Miss Level. She is here and was one of my junior high teachers. She has nothing to say to you. And uh, any stories that she may have was before Calvary. So (laughs) with that, I think we're ready to go into Luke. Or uh, not Luke, Acts, all right? Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first account I compose, this is Luke, same author, Theophilus, same recipient, about all that Jesus has done, um, began to do and teach, until the day He was taken up into heaven, after He had, uh, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. To these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you would heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this the time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he, lifted, he was lifted up while they were looking on. Hey, the Shekinah glory of God, a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, because that's where the disciples are from. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you in heaven will come back just the same way you watched him go in to heaven. Let's ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity in the middle of the summer when much of our church family is traveling. We we are thankful that we can be here to open your word. Father, these are your people. This is your church. Everything belongs to you. We are stewards. Lord, help me to be a good steward of your word this morning. I pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident. Father, that I would speak with humility, yet boldness, Humor, yet truth, passion, with conviction. I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this room. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us this word 
so that Your Son might be lifted up and glorified. That You would receive all the glory. Father, I am a sinner. I fail often. I thank You for Your grace. I am thankful that there is more grace in You than sin in me. And I pray this and I thank You in Your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say Amen. There's my amen corner here, right over there. All right. It's kind of sad when a Baptist church only has a corner of amens, and that's a soft message for the rest of you. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a single seed. But if it goes into the earth and dies, it will bear much fruit. In this imagery, Jesus is the grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies. But because He did, the Gospel will now bear much fruit. That is, what is, that is what the book of Luke is all about. In the book of Luke, the grain falls to the earth, Jesus, and dies. And now in the book of Acts, we will see the great fruit that comes with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will see the spread of Christianity, the birth of the church, and the clarity of our mission. In Luke, we see how Jesus offered His life. In Acts, we will see how Jesus offered His power. In Luke, we will see a seed that is Christ die. In Acts, we will see the amazing growth. In Luke, we see Christ crucified and risen. In Acts, we will see Christ ascended and exalted. In Luke, we will see a a life lived out by a perfect man. In Acts, we will see how it is lived out in imperfect people. In short, the book of Acts is how to live out what we learned in Luke. And maybe you can relate to what I'm about to read. Lloyd Olive said this, I have been a member of church for many years. I have built buildings I have raised money, I've served in committees, I've taught Sunday school, but if there's one thing my church never showed me, that is how to have a relationship with Christ. This is what the book of Acts is all about. How to make our life for Christ count. If you feel like your life with Jesus is near irrelevant, the book of Acts contains the remedy Acts is simply the fruit that comes now that the seed has fallen to the ground. In fact, the first verse of Acts is meant to recall all that we studied in the book of Luke and indicate that Luke's desire is simply to continue the story. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, if we went three years back, it says this, It seemed fitting to me as well to write it out to you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth of the things that you have been taught. And now we come into Acts chapter 1, beginning in verses 1 and 2. It says this, The first account, which is the book of Luke, Theophilus, I've told you all about what Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up to heaven after He had given orders by the Holy Spirit for the apostles whom He has chosen. These two verses summarize the entire book of Luke and tie it together with Acts. And with that in mind, we are about to step 
our first footprint into the, the dust of the book of Luke, or Acts, it's going to take me a while, all right? How many here remember when you started to have to call your mom and father-in-law mom and dad for the first time? Do you remember that? It takes a little bit of time to get used to this. Acts, all right? When you hear, in fact, when you hear me say the word Luke, you just translate it into the book of Acts, all right? So we're going to begin unpacking what a relevant relationship with Christ looks at, looks like. So let's take a look at verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5 say this, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days, speaking to things regarding the kingdom of God, gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father has promised which he has said, you have heard from me, for John the Baptist with water, but for you, baptized by the Holy Spirit, not many days from now, roughly about a week from now. Now the words here, to these he also presented himself alive after suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Our first observation is just going to be just rather um, academic, if you will. By giving them numerous proofs and appearing to them over uh, many times, it protected against the possibility of, of being told or being accused that Jesus being alive was nothing more than a hallucination. If Jesus only appeared once and showed himself to the disciples, it could possibly be explained away as, as massive grief accompanied by great desire and delusion. But many appearances and many proofs to many groups of people make it impossible to be in hallucination. The words appearing to them, by the way, includes a lot more than just the original disciples. It would include more than just the eleven. You see, if Jesus appeared only to eleven, maybe skeptics can say they got together and they, they formed a story, a lie, and they stuck to it. But the Bible tells us of at least ten um, occurrences or appearances of Jesus during these 40 days, which, by the way, there was almost certainly more than just 10. But if there were only 10, um, of an average of about three to four days, Jesus appeared again. But there was certainly more than that. Allow me to just pepper you with the few that we do know. Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb, to Mary Magdalene, to the two uh, disciples on the Emmaus Road. He presented himself to Peter, then to the eleven disciples. He appeared to five hundred witnesses above and beyond that. He appeared to James, the uh, the Lord's brother. And as we studied last week, he spent forty days teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, more than just the kingdom of God, he also taught them about how the Old Testament is written concerning Jesus Christ. That all scriptures point to Jesus Christ. You'll find that in Luke 24, verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 27. So let me just kind of summarize this for you here. For 40 days, they were being taught, and by the way, we ought to approach the scriptures the very same way. They were being taught how to interpret scriptures Christologically. Christologically in terms of kingdom expectations. 
And when we see this, what this does is this is going to bring up our first kind of surface application here, but it has a lot of meaning for our lives. So this is our first application with, with two very unbelievably simple points. But as simple as the points are, the church today has lost sight of them when they should be right in front of our eyes. These two things help us answer the question we often ask ourselves. And if you're anything like me, I have found myself over the years asking myself the question, why is my faith not more relevant to me and to others? How do I transform my life to gain passion and purpose and meaning? Well, the first one we see right here in the 40 days of Jesus' teaching, and that is this, we must not be ignorant of biblical truth. He spent 40 days teaching them the scriptures, not a brand, not a style, not a dress code, not a hairstyle, not a, not a flavor of things, but of scriptures. The second thing he was teaching them is how it is to be lived out in their lives in relation to the kingdom of God. The church today may very well have lost sight of these things. It is astounding how little the American church knows about the Word of God. And I say this to my own condemnation as well. My childhood church taught me that the single most precious thing in all of the world, and maybe you can finish this, the most precious thing in Christianity and me growing up was to answer this question, what will people what? Think. What will people say? What will they think? That was the number one priority rather than do I know and love Christ. Because of this, I grew up knowing exactly how I should dress and what words were swear words. But Jesus was never on my mind and He was never on my heart. Maybe you can relate to that. So here's the question. How can we share what we do not know and love? How do we share what we do not know in love? And how are the lost to believe if its power has not changed our lives? No one is interested in a message of an ignorant Christian whose life gives no evidence of its power. Church, we must yearn to know the Word of God and the power of His resurrection. You see, the greatest outreach that the church could ever give is to live transformed lives, Bible-hungry lives. We do not need another program in the church. What we need is to know and live out that which is already given to us. Amen? That's what we need. Do we know His Word? Brothers and sisters, is your knowledge growing and is your life changing? And I'm just going to be bold for a minute. And if not, make a decision already today. Either start growing in your knowledge of Christ and and living Him out in your life. Or here it is to the church, just get out of the way. And we might say, well, that seems a little strong. That might seem a little bold. But allow me, with humility and conviction, to quote Joshua. He said this, 
But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's one of those verses we put up on Hobby Lobby. You know, old looking wood that's framed. And and there it is. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But there is a challenge in an ultimatum that comes before it. Make a decision. Strong doctrine. And holy living is essential to making our lives relevant in Christ. For too long, we have held the lie in our cultural Christian hand. A lie that says there can be spiritual growth without study. Passion without application. Oh, brethren, such a path in Christ simply does not exist. Now, with that in mind, he says this. And he commanded them to leave Jerusalem and to wait for what his father has promised, which he said, you'd heard from me, John the Baptist with water, but I with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There is a lot that we could unpack here. Weeks of study. But this will be impacted in the book of Acts in just the next few weeks and months. So I will allow those passages to speak for themselves. But all I want to say is this. What Jesus is asking them to do here when he gives them the mission is impossible on their own efforts. What we are asked to do as a church, which is to proclaim the repentance uh, the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the world is impossible on our own effort. They need the Holy Spirit. Church, there is a desire for us to run out in front of God and to do things in our own power, in our own name, in our own desires. In fact, if I may borrow from what Jesus is saying here and say it back to us today, we need to sit still, stop, and make sure that what we are doing is done in the knowledge and understanding and biblically from the Word of God and in the power and the ministry of His Holy Spirit. Because without His Spirit, without His Word, our efforts as a church face the the, the reality of coming back void. We need His Word and we need His Spirit. Amen? Baptists, we need His Holy Spirit and we need to ground everything in His Word because everything else we can hand over to the YMCA. Could it be, could it be that the church's fruit today is so wrinkled and void because we know so little of the Word of God Christologically and we rely almost nil on His Holy Spirit. Oh God, fill us with Your Spirit. Fill us with obedience. May we be, oh I love this oxymoron here, may we be aggressively patient to do Your will. And then he says in the next six, verses six through eight, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time. So they hear this. So when they had come together, they began asking the Lord, Lord, is it the time that you will be restoring the kingdom of Israel? Have you ever just had someone who only has one thing on their mind? That is it. Doesn't matter what you say to them. Doesn't matter what the topic is. They read themselves into it and bring it back to what they want to talk about. Anyone here at all? What are some subjects people love to talk about? 
<laughs> themselves. Yeah. I always tell my children, hey, if you really want people to like you and you really want to get to know them, just ask them. Oh, my son's here. Ask them about what? Themselves. And then just zip it and let them run with the line. They will love it. Then you set the hook. All right. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. They always got one thing on their mind. So with that, let's unpack this. Lord, is it time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Now, our first thought is, oh, these slow disciples. Well, actually, this is a very, very good question. It's actually not a bad question at all. In fact, it's a rather astute and accurate question. A lot of times we give grief on on these disciples, but this question here is rather astute. I don't know what the word astute is, but I think I'm hitting it. Am I hitting it? Okay, this as long as you, I give the impression that I know what I'm talking about. One theologian summarized it well. He said this, restoration of Israel was deeply rooted, oh, there it is, was deeply rooted in Old Testament prophecies. What has Jesus been teaching out of the last 40 days? Out of what? Old Testament. And relation to who? Jesus Christ. About his what? Kingdom. So, this is, this is stuff Jesus is teaching about. Restoration of Israel was deeply rooted in Old Testament prophecies of Israel's future and closely tied to the city of Jerusalem. So all the tenets are there, all right? This is what they've been talking about. Now here's a question. Where did Jesus tell them to go? Talk to me. Go to where? Jerusalem. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, this is, this is what they've been waiting for. In fact, just in verse four that we just looked at, it says he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait where the Father has promised. Promised what? Oh, it must be the kingdom. It must be the, the, the establishment of Israel and the, the restoration. They understood. All right. They understood that God promised in the Old Testament, To bring the kingdom, that stuff that Jesus is teaching, of God to Jerusalem. And Jesus just said, go and wait there for what my Father has promised. Now, if we were in their shoes, this would be our first first thought as well. Establish and restore Israel through the Messiah, who is risen and alive and giving many proofs and loves to eat leftover fish. This is an amazing moment. And it would be fulfilled in Jerusalem and the world would come to Jerusalem. In fact, Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4 says, says that. Oh, it's right up here. I'll go to the brighter one. Okay. Now the house of the Lord will be established and all the nations will stream to Jerusalem. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. So the question is not misguided. The question is not ignorant. It is rather what? Astute. All right? Whatever that means. Accurate. We see this actually in the response of Jesus. Notice Jesus didn't deny their expectations. He didn't say, oh, there will never be a kingdom. Oh, you guys don't get it. You're so slow. How can you be so slow? He didn't say that. He didn't say, guys, you don't get it. My kingdom will never be physical. He didn't say that. He never said the words, I'm done with Israel. I'm not restoring you. Get out of here. Jesus didn't correct their understanding. 
that he would rule and restore Israel in a real physical kingdom of God, which we know to be the millennial kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in its physical form will be established. Oh, and by the way, God is not done with Israel. Now, with all of that, he doesn't correct them. He corrects their focus. He corrects their focus. It is not for you to know the periods of time appointed. All right? Times which the Father has set by his own authority. Let me just give you very two points here, all right, before we get to some application. First, we already touched on it. God is not done with Israel. All right? Number two, let me give you another point here, which Jesus is saying. He doesn't correct their understanding of the physical, literal kingdom. He corrects their focus on it. And really what he's doing here is he's saying this. Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is giving them their mission, which is to proclaim the repentance for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the mission. Keep the main thing the main thing. And do it to all the world. But before the lips of Jesus stopped moving, how many here notice when you're talking to someone and they can't wait for you to stop talking so they can say something? Anyone at all? Anyone here ever get interrupted? Anyone? We all do. Before Jesus can stop moving his lips, they're like, oh, oh, question, question. I got a question about me. I got a question about the kingdom. They are already interested in secondary things. Jesus is teaching the main thing and their response is peripheral. The secondary things like time and dates. Before Jesus stops talking, they're interested in secondary biblical issues like time and dates. Oh, there is no application for the church here. Amen? Aren't you glad we don't get distracted with times and dates and secondary issues? How many are thankful that the church is laser focused on the mission? Amen? Of course we do. Because if there is one thing we don't do anymore. It's get distracted with secondary issues that are important to us personally. Even sometimes they're biblical. They're, do you know it's possible to be distracted with biblical issues that pull us away from the primary reason we were saved? You should hear the questions we get on the telephone during the week about whether or not, what, when, when people are thinking about whether or not they go to Trinity. How many here would like to hear a list of actual things people want to know about us before they come? Anyone at all? You want to hear that? All right. With a motion, say amen. amen. Opposed the same. Be quiet. Here we go. All right. Here's some actual questions we get. Do you practice sign gifts? Does your church believe in constitutional rights? Does your church support the NRA. That's a primary issue for me. All right. Are you KJV only? What style of music uh, do you sing? Do you have a track rack? What curriculum do you use? Do you have a prayer group for single fathers with adolescent children who have recently been cut from the swim team? Now, that might be exaggerated, all right? But you know what I'm saying there. Now, before we laugh and say, that's kind of ridiculous, don't we do the same? We do the same. Are we not defenders of our own biblical special interests? 
You know, we often go, the problem with Washington is the lobbyists pushing their special interests. You just want to go, have you seen the church? Ministries that tailor exactly to our stage of life or the emphasis or passions that we're currently carrying. I've had a conversation often with people who want to come to Trinity and want to make sure their interests will be supported. I've had five of them this month alone where I am asked or told if I come, this is something I would really like to see. My answer is always the same. I will not try to lure you to Trinity. I am not a used car salesman and the church of Jesus Christ is not his car lot. Can I get a witness to that at all? It's not a car lot, all right? And a lot of times I'll say, whatever I have to promise you to get you to come to Trinity, I'm going to have to do like four to ten times much more in order to keep you at Trinity, which makes me nothing more than a, a spiritualized dancing monkey. You know, oh, what did I promise you? Da, 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 da. Oh, you over here, I'm sorry. Oh, that makes you mad? I'm sorry. Oh, you're mad. All right. You know what? I'm done with that. I'm getting old, all right? I think I pulled a hamstring there. And I tell them, if you come to Trinity, let it be because you value Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Now, I want to be gentle here. It's not that some of these things are wrong. Some of them even have biblical roots. But when we elevate them over that of our mission, they are out of place. What good would it be if the disciples knew the day and the hour but neglected the mission? What good would it be if Trinity had all our special interests just right? Oh, we were going to the right Christian camp with the right Christian home and public schools with the right music and retreats and college ministries and fellowships and pulpit ministry and budgets were perfect and the small groups were so effective and and we failed to share the gospel. Imagine what would happen if Jesus told them, oh, it's going to be 2,500 years and I'm coming back. How many here, what would your lifestyle look like if you had a 2,500 year buffer? Anyone? My kids are like, when are you coming home? I'm like, wouldn't you like to know? I'm telling you nothing, all right? Because that's, that's, the, that's our, our humanity, is it not? When my parents said, you know, I'll be back in four hours, Brett, that means I had three hours and 50 minutes to deny Christ, all right? And then I straightened up in the last 10 minutes. Jesus answered them was, don't be focused on these side things. Be focused on the Great Commission being lived out in your lives. Oh church, if we do one thing, may it be a living example of Christology proclaiming the repentance of sin for the forgiveness of God. Oh may our church be saved from Satan's greatest strategy. And oh, it is subtle, but it is potent. Satan's greatest strategy, which is to keep the church obsessed with secondary interests to the point that we fail our mission. We must keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus redirected their focus. Oh, how we need this today. Do you know that the number one reason people leave churches today is because their biblical special special interest is not elevated to their satisfaction? Ouch. 
Jesus refocuses them on what they should be concerned about. And we see it in the very next words. He says, you shall be my witnesses. 39 times in the book of Acts, Jesus uses this phrase. You you might think that this is the theme of the church. Now with this, there's been an inaccurate application to this here within the church. Oftentimes, people will say the church must design itself to be seeker-sensitive. The church must design itself to to make the, the lost comfortable under the teaching of the Word of God. How else will we get the, the, the lost to come to church? By the way, this is not a biblical application. Let me just cut to the chase. Everyone in this world ought to feel welcome by the people of this church. Amen, church? We ought to welcome everyone, but the church is not to dumb down the truth of God's Word or concede His holy standards and call evil good and good evil so that the world will be comfortable inside of our doors. The church is for believers. It is for the strengthening of believers to gather and glorify and proclaim on Sunday a resurrected Savior to hear the deep truths of God's Word, to grow in our understanding of who Christ is, and then with that growth and with that encouragement and with that exhortation, leave these doors and be 39 times His witness. The church does not need another witnessing programs. It needs believers who witness. Notice the progression here. To Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Notice, and I like this here, Christ's design for His church is not that the lost flood in, but that the found flood out. How many here would agree, we've kind of missed that in an American church today? How will they come? They're not supposed to come. We're supposed to go. The design and the mission is so not that the lost flood in, but rather the found flood out. Real quick, I just want to correct a faulty paradigm here that has existed in the church for a generation. We have improperly dichotomized the church with missions as though they are distinct from one another. Now let me be clear, it is good and biblical that we send and support missionaries to the furthest parts of the earth. But we falsely separate the church from missions. How much does the church give to missions? How much does your church, how much do they? Now, my friends, the primary question is not how much does the church support missions. The primary question is does the church know it is the missionary? Every dollar collected, every sermon preached, every friend made, every member going to work, every child to school is to be a witness to the city we live in, to the state we reside, to the country that is unreached. And while the words Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth teach us that our mission should ripple out, it starts where we're at and goes out, it also carries, I'm going to say, not just a, 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 a geographical roadmap of what mission should look like, but it carries a more significant and meaningful mission that is about our heart. 
This is not just about a map. This is a typography of Christ. It is a map of our heart. It is a blueprint for our heart. Do you know how hard these words would have been for these 11 men to swallow? They're supposed to start in Jerusalem. There was a small event that just happened in Jerusalem. Very small one. It got dark. There was an earthquake. The temper veil shook. There were seven saints from the cross. People just killed and rejected Christ. Go there. Oh, when you're done... Go to Samaria. Now we all know how much the Jews love Samaritans. Amen? They called them dogs. They wouldn't even worship on the same mountain. They had different temples. This was hardcore racism between these two groups of people. Then to Judea and then expanding out to the whole earth. Gentiles. Let me say it another way. Romans. Jews loved Romans and Samaritans. It was their favorite time. That was a sip and savor ministry. Hey, you going to the Samaritans? No, they no. The answer was no, never. They would walk around that area before they talked to a Samaritan. And then to the Romans, let me say it another way. Romans, Ethiopians, Asians, Egyptians, let me say it another way. Every ethnicity of the world. Here's my point. And then we're almost done. Don't listen for the first 35 minutes and then miss this next moment. The gospel is to go out, flood out from strong, Bible-believing, Christ-teaching churches to gather converts and disciple them to maturity in Christ and then send them out to their family and friends. Are we to do this? Yes. But the message is even stronger than that here. They are to take the Gospel to those... I'm going to take a drink because it's so good. They are to take the Gospel of Jesus Christ to those they do not what? Like. They don't want to be in the same room with them. You might say in this culture, if you disagreed with one another, you were just labeled evil. How many here are glad that does not exist today? Oh, the melting pot of America. They are to take the gospel to those they do not like. The gospel is not just for friends and family and their race, or economic, social class, or for those we are simply drawn to it. The Gospel, church, agree with this, is for all. Okay, maybe you didn't hear me. The Gospel is for all. Even those you cannot stand. Even those you do not agree with. Even your... Those who are uh, have political and and are social enemies, because the same the same gospel that converts the Jew is the same gospel that converts the Gentile. I think I shared this once on a Sunday evening. This is my last example before we wrap it up. No, it's the second. No, it's the third to last. No, I'm teasing. During the pandemic this year, I had a gentleman who 
viewed their Christianity through their politics. They viewed their Christianity through their politics. And this gentleman, who was rather new to the church, he wasn't here very long, got very angry at some of the requests we had made during that time and decided to call me an advocate for Satan. He then told me that I was a cupbearer to Governor Whitmer. And I just, I, at that point, I just said, how dare you? I mean, Satan, I'm fine with, but the governor? I mean, for crying out loud. No, please no. Please no. We ought to be praying for our governor. We ought to be praying for our governor. I don't know about you. I wouldn't want her job last year. Can we at least be graceful? Amen? Oh, so I was Satan. I was a cupbearer. I think there was something else I was, but I don't remember. He told me, oh, here it is, that I was placing my faith in government salvation. That this was nothing more than a political strategy that threatened his individual rights. And he said, and this is, I'm just going to say it. He said, I don't even believe that a Democrat can be saved. That broke my heart. Not because of what he called me, or that I was a cupbearer to Whitmer, or, or even that he called me Satan. Being called names and being accused in ministry is called being awake. I was brokenhearted because of his rage and vitriol towards a person who was not like him or thought like him. I said, do you really believe and feel that? He said, yes, without apology, yes. And then he said to me, I'm not sure that this church shares the same mission I have. And to that church I say, indeed, we do not. Friends, ours is not a mission that seeks to reach only those who resemble us but rather reach all those who are created in the image of God. We are not to pick and choose who is worthy of this message based on how we feel about them, but rather offer this message based on how God loves them. My friends, may we have ears to hear. The Gospel is to be offered to all. The Gospel is to be offered to black and to white, to Indian and to Asian. It is for the Democrat and the Republican. It is for the left and it is for the right. It is for the capitalist and the socialist. It is for the Baptist and the Catholic. It is for those in Black Lives Matter and for those in the Proud Boys. It is for the straight and it is for the gay. It is for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. For the child and the adult, the rich and the poor, the Christian and the Muslim. Because the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes that is our heart does this describe us does this describe you and me if you or I or we, if you are not willing to share the gospel and build relationships with those who are not like you repent in the name of the Lord repent because that is not the gospel. May we be reminded that while we were yet enemies with God, He what? Died for us. 
Oh, there can be no burden for distant, unreached people if there is no burden for unreached neighbors. Christ is not just giving us a road map, a strategy, but a heart for the world. Now I want to be clear. While we are to share the gospel with all, even those who are not like us, that's right, Christian, Democrat, we are to know and love and share the gospel with and vice versa, and black and white, and all over the back. There is no one that we should not love and build relationships with and share the gospel. We are to share. Here it is. Here it is, though. Well, we are to share the gospel with all, even those who are unlike us. We are to share one message. We cannot change it to fill our seats or compromise its message. The gospel must not be compromised. We are, we are to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is to teach the repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the world. You see, I'm not saying that all of these people groups and their sinful affiliations, whatever they may be, should be accommodated in the church. What I'm saying is we should seek to share the gospel so that repentance can be found. In 1941, and I'm going to close with this. In 1941, a great Welsh preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke to a large audience of students from Oxford University. He preached to them as he would preach anywhere else. After the meeting, it was announced that if anyone had questions, They could come to a room in the back of the church and ask Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He expected just a few of these highly privileged and trained Oxford students. But the room was packed. A bright young student immediately got up and phrased his question with all the grace and polish of a brilliant oratory. He complimented Dr. Jones, but then he said he had one, one great difficulty. He didn't see how the sermon that was just taught, might not equally have been delivered to a congregation of uneducated farm laborers, immigrants, field workers. The intellectual crowd roared with laughter. Lloyd-Jones replied that he didn't see any difficulty in that. And he said he regarded graduates from Oxford University as just ordinary, common, human sinners like everyone else, and they had the same needs at farm laborers and anyone else. Thus he had preached quite deliberately as he had, and he drew laughs from them, and then while they were laughing, capturing their full attention, oh, what a tool that can be, he leaned in and he said this, There is no greater fallacy than to think you need a gospel for special types of people. The point is, whether you are a farm laborer or a Ph.D., there is only one and only one message that can save us from sin and God's judgment, and that is, church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, let us keep the main thing, the main thing for all people. And with that, we can pull our foot back from the book of Acts 
and see the first step in a thousand mile journey. A journey that if we take seriously can transform our lives. I love you, church. I look forward to walking with this, with you together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that your gospel is not just for those we like, it is for all. Thank you for your word. May we grow in our knowledge of it. May we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and may we apply it. May we repent from the lie that there can be growth without study and passion without application. Wake us up. And I pray this in your son's precious name.